Before we look into God's Word together today, two things. First of all, each month on the first Sunday of the month, we take a benevolent offering as you are leaving. It's in addition to our regular offering, and that supports our interventions in the lives of our members who need the church as a financial safety net. Now, on a normal month, you give three to $4,000 to that fund, and that enables us to sustain a very strong, ongoing, benevolent ministry. But you remember, last weekend, we designated that offering to help Beverly Raider, retired Alliance missionary of over 30 years to Columbia, South America, one of our own, as she was facing some needs in retirement. Well, I'm happy to report that rather than giving three or $4,000, last weekend you gave $17,000. So thank you for your generosity. And because of your regular giving to our benevolent fund, we have enough balance. We'll be able to make up the difference from that. So Bev's need is entirely taken care of in one week's time. Second thing I want to announce so that I can express appreciation, this Sunday marks my 35th anniversary as pastor here, and I have always felt that pastoral anniversaries are not a time for congregations to thank pastors. They are a time for pastors to thank congregations. Here's why. The call to pastor doesn't mean anything if you don't have a congregation that believes you're called and will give you a place to live out your calling before God. A place that believes you're called and that will support you and your family as you seek to live out that calling. You have done that for me and for Karen and for my family now for 35 years. And you know, when I'm in pastoral gatherings, it is not at all uncommon for pastors to have horror stories about things said to them, things done to them by God's people. I'm always delighted when I'm in one of those circles, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> because I can honestly say, in my 35 years here, I've never had a really ugly situation. I've never been treated badly. There have been a handful of people who have probed the depths of my sanctification, but, <laughs> but they were really isolated incidents, and, 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 and they weren't big deals. They weren't big deals. As a congregation, it, it is, you, you guys are awesome, and it's just a privilege, a great, great privilege to have spent the last 35 years with you. Now, with that being said, I want to go immediately into the Word and begin our study of the second half of the book of Daniel. The ancient book that gives us pointers that serves as a manual, if you will, on how we can maintain our devotion to God when we find ourselves in a corrupt culture. Now, as you're going to see, the second half of the book of Daniel is markedly, drastically different than the first half. The first half of the book communicated the sovereignty of God by way of compelling, faith-inspiring stories. Stories of teenage courage, interpreted dreams, a fiery furnace, handwriting on the wall, and finally in chapter 6, a lion's den. It's an easy read. 
But the second half of the book is not an easy read. It is a much harder read because it also portrays God's sovereignty, but it does so by way of dreams and visions that God gave to Daniel, four of them in total. And those visions are chock full of graphic, strange to us, symbolism. People sometimes ask, why does God use symbolism like that? And I'd like to suggest it's because symbolism is timeless. The meaning of words can change over time. But symbols have a way of enduring. But the thing is, at first glance, those symbols appear to defy understanding. They leave you scratching your head. What in the world is that all about? And worse, they appear to lack relevance to what you're going to deal with this coming week. But don't let the appearances fool you. God said all scripture is profitable and Daniel's visions are not excluded because Daniel's visions tell us where we're heading and they tell us where the world is heading. Now, much like the writers of the popular TV series, This Is Us. How many watched This Is Us? Oh, not, not as many as I expected. My, my wife was addicted to that thing. I'd wake up in the middle of the night. She's watching an episode on Netflix, and I'm like, really? And back to sleep. <laughs> but like the writers of This Is Us, Daniel wasn't concerned about presenting things in chronological order. He was more concerned about communicating the, the content of his visions. So the first two visions that we're about to study were actually given before he had an overnight stay in the lion's den. And the second two visions we'll study came after that event when he was under Persian rule. And while there is some room for debate on some of the smaller particulars of the vision, their central message is clear, and here it is. There's an expiration date on human rebellion and the evil systems it produces. A day is coming when both of those things will end. When blasphemy, atheism, oppression, persecution, genocide, war, injustice, racism, corruption, and terrorism will end, never to be heard of again. Now, obviously, we're not there yet. That time hasn't come. It may come during our lifetime. It may not. It may still be far away. But whenever it arrives... Daniel's visions testify that God keeps his promises. A day of final judgment will come. Now to launch us into our study, I want to read some of the words that describe that day. They're found in Daniel 7, verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. That's us, followers of Jesus. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. I think my title today is fitting. It's A Day Is Coming. Would you say that with me? A Day Is Coming. Let's pray together. Father, in these coming moments as we study your life-transforming, eternal, never-changing, always reliable word, grant me a fresh anointing of the Spirit that I might teach faithfully. Grant each of us a fresh anointing that we might hear what you're saying to us at this moment in our life and respond to it with faith. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today as a community of faith, may the Lord be with you. That's our only attempt at high church right there. <laughs> a study was done recently by credible medical professionals that indicate preaching passionately for 40 minutes has the same fatiguing effect as doing eight hours of physical labor. All has to do with adrenaline spike and adrenaline deficit. Now, on an average weekend, I preach four times in less than 24 hours. This week, because of man up, it will be five times. So Sunday afternoon, I am roadkill. <laughs> I mean, I'm alive physically, but you wouldn't know it. Now, I, I eat lunch with my family. I find a spot on the couch. I find whatever sporting event interests me, and that's where I remain until it's time to go to bed. So if you ever invite us over on a Sunday, I'll probably decline because I'm about as much fun as lint on the couch. I really am. <laughs> well, a few weeks ago, in fact, it was last Sunday afternoon, I was watching the pirate broadcast. Don't ask me why, but I was watching the pirate <laughs> broadcast. And, and in between innings, I began grazing a little bit, and I came across on the NFL channel a replay of the AFC wildcard game from the year 2015. It was a contest between our beloved Pittsburgh Stillers and what we like to call the Cincinnati Bungles. <laughs> now the fourth quarter had just started and the replay moves along rapidly. And on the other channel, the Pirates were doing everything they could to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So I thought, I'm, I'm going to stay and watch something pleasant. I'm not a masochist. Eh? Now, if you're a Steelers fan, you remember that 2015 game. The black and gold, as the end of the third quarter approached, had a very comfortable 15-point lead. 15-0. They appeared to be in control. Then Ben Roethlisberger was sacked and injured and went off the field. And with that, momentum shifted, and it shifted quickly. And with just over a minute remaining in the game, the Bengals possessed a one-point lead, and following an interception, they had the ball, a fresh set of downs, deep in our territory. So it looked like it was going to be a really bitter Steeler loss. And is there any other kind of Steeler loss? <laughs> but then the Bengal running back fumbled. And the Steelers recovered. And that set off a really bizarre series of events. The Steelers had the ball, but they were well out of field goal range, and they were almost out of time. And after two first downs left them with little time and well out of range, that's when the Bengals decided they would snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. They committed two inexplainable, undisciplined, bone-headed, personal fouls. One of them between plays. <laughs> and the Steelers accepted the gift of 30 yards of penalty, kicked the game-winning field goal with seconds left as a stunned Bengal crowd looked on in disbelief. Now, unlike the first time I watched the final moments of that game, this time I felt no tension. 
I didn't shout at the TV. I didn't get up and walk around the couch. Karen didn't have to come in and say, it's just a stupid game. <laughs> I didn't resign myself to being disappointed. I remained calm. And even when the Bengals intercepted us and all appeared lost, I was at peace. <laughs> because I knew how the game ended. Now, there are numerous times in life when God's people need to know how the game's going to end. And there was a time in Daniel's life when he needed to know how the game was going to end. He had served under Nebuchadnezzar. They had a great relationship. He was the top dog under Nebuchadnezzar, and he had seen Nebuchadnezzar come to faith in the last years of his life. But Nebuchadnezzar was no longer the ruler, and in his place was a successor who had far less ability, far less character, and far more evil. And Daniel was reminded yet again that there are no timeouts in spiritual warfare. Every victory is followed by another battle, and it usually arrives quickly. Because there's somebody that doesn't want you celebrating your victories in Christ for very long. He'll always bring a new challenge. Now, we've already studied chapter 5. So we know that that new ruler, Belshazzar, resented Daniel, resented his Hebrew countrymen, resented his faith, and resented his God. He'd make that very clear. And it's likely he immediately demoted Daniel stripped him of his high position and then essentially forgot about him. Because you remember when the handwriting appeared on the wall, the queen had to remind Belshazzar of Daniel's existence and his ability to interpret dreams. And Belshazzar's conduct toward Daniel reminds us that fallen humanity always, always seeks both to marginalize and silence those who speak of God because their message threatens its agendas. And we're seeing that happen in our nation. There are people who want to marginalize followers of Christ, and there are those who would like to silence followers of Christ. Our message threatens their agenda. Well, Daniel found himself with his heretofore spectacular career in severe decline. He was a forgotten man. And he found himself under the rule of an evil man. And I suspect he wondered, Lord, what does the immediate future hold for me? But more importantly, for my fellow exiles and for my beloved nation of Israel. And as he was wondering, that's when God gave him the first vision. Because God knows when we need to hear his voice. God knows when you need to hear his voice. But I want to remind you, it's probably not as often as we tend to assume. My experience is there are times when God simply wants us to trust the last thing he said to us. Sometimes if we're always needing a word from God, it's indicative of a deficient faith. And, and I, I've been around the block enough not times to know that uh, if people feel they should always be getting a fresh word from God, when God doesn't give them one, they make one up and put God's name on it. And there's a lot of that goes on under the name of spirit-filled living. 
Sometimes God simply wants us to trust what he said to us previously. Consider Noah. God gave him marching orders, put him and his family in the ark, closed the door, and then God never said another word to Noah for an entire year. I refer to it as Noah's silent year. So Noah just kept running on the last thing God told him, which in his case was easy to do. He, there weren't any other options. But God doesn't always come with a fresh word. But on this occasion, evidently Daniel needed one, and God gave him one. As I said, it came in the form of two visions. And both of them revealed what was ahead. But here's the catch. They revealed what was far ahead, not what was immediately ahead. And I believe that highlights one of the chief takeaways from Daniel's visions. When God's people are uncertain of the immediate future, he often reminds them that he controls the far-off future. And we don't always find that reminder satisfying. Because when our faith is challenged, we tend to crave current explanations, not future prophecies. Lord, I just, I just need to make it through this week. I don't need to know what's got to happen in a thousand years. We assume if we know what God's doing in the moment, we'll be able to trust him for the final outcome. But the visions that God gave to Daniel suggest that God sees the path to strong faith differently. He sees it as moving from knowledge of the final outcome to confidence in the immediate moment. Consider Abraham. What did God tell him when he called him? God told him about the far, far off outcome. Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through that great nation, all the people of the world will be blessed. That was a reference to the Messiah who would come out of the Jewish people. That was a far-off outcome that Abraham would never see. What God didn't tell him is where he was moving him to. He said, just sell your business, say goodbye to your family, pack up the family, hit the road, and I'll show you where we're going on the way. Because God can't steer a parked car. If you want to know where God's taking you, you have to be willing to move before you know the destination. Didn't tell him where he was going, but told him about things thousands of years away. He didn't even tell him what challenges he would face as he made his way to the land of promise. God talked to him about the far off, not the near at hand. Jesus did essentially the same thing. Before he ascended, as he was commissioning his disciples to take the gospel of the kingdom to all people groups, what did he do to prep them? He gave them lengthy prophecies about his second coming, an event that still hasn't happened. Jesus explained the far-off future when they had a lot of immediate questions. So when God addressed Daniel's immediate concerns about a corrupt leader, by giving him a vision of a future, some of which still hasn't unfolded, it tells us God knows that those who trust him for the big things that are far off are best able to trust him for the smaller things that are at hand. 
And 43 years of pastoral experience has taught me that and reminded me of that again and again. The people who know where God is going are the people who are best able to deal with the bumps in the road in the immediate moment. That's why prophecy is so relevant. I don't know if you highlight your Bible. You probably don't. If it's on your phone, it takes a couple more steps. But, but what I have found is that when people highlight their Bible, they almost always tend to highlight two kinds of verses. Promise verses, what God's going to do for us, and behavioral verses, what we're supposed to do. But we rarely highlight prophecy. And that's unfortunate. Because knowledge of the future gives us discernment in the present and it sustains present faith. When you know what the outcome's going to be, you remain calm. You don't get up and walk around the couch. You don't resign yourself to being disappointed. Now, I'm not going to unpack the first vision in its entirety today. We'll begin to do that in two weeks after Father's Day weekend. Today, I've wanted to focus primarily on the lessons behind the visions themselves. But let me take the view from 30,000 feet just to set us up for two weeks from now. That first vision given to Daniel involves strange and fierce wild animals, four of them all together. And we now know that they symbolized four powerful empires. Three of those empires are in the rearview mirror of history. They're long gone. One of them is yet to come. They were almost the same empires Daniel saw earlier when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue that was constructed of various kinds of metals. But that vision only gave the identity and the sequence of the empires. This time, God revealed something of their nature. Now, these four beasts emerged from the sea. In Hebrew culture and all throughout Scripture, the sea symbolizes the unrelenting restlessness that is produced by sin in the human heart. And it symbolizes the unrelenting restlessness an agitation of sinful nations that speak of peace but never find it. Now that first beast was part lion and part eagle. We know from archaeology and Babylonian artifacts and biblical prophetic passages clearly represented Babylon. And the fact that that beast was later given a human heart likely symbolizes that moment when God brought Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, back to his sanity and brought him to faith in God. The second beast was a bear. And we know that was symbolic of the Medo-Persian Empire. And the bear was raised up on one side, probably because in that partnership of the Medes and the Persians, the Persians were the heavy hitters. They're the ones that really had the power. The third was a leopard with wings. The wings communicate speed. The leopards represent the Greek Empire because Greece conquered rapidly, very rapidly, under Alexander the Great. And the leopard had four heads because if you know history, you know after Alexander died, instead of one ruler replacing him, the Greek Empire was divided into four components with four different 
rulers. I mean, God knew what was going to happen long before it happened. <laughs> then the fourth beast appeared. It was different. It had iron teeth. It devoured anything that stood in its way. It was unlike any beast Daniel had ever heard of or witnessed. And this odd creature had ten horns. And as Daniel watched, a small, an eleventh horn, began to emerge in the middle of the other ten, and it eventually displaced three of them. And this little horn that emerged had human eyes, and it had a mouth, and it talked big talk. Daniel said it spoke great things. It was boastful. Now we're going to study that fourth creature that symbolizes a future empire. Daniel wasn't the only one to receive a vision of it. The Apostle John did as well, and he wrote it in Revelation. The Apostle Paul did as well and wrote it in his letters to Thessalonica and elsewhere. So we'll take all of their materials we interpret that final empire. But after that fourth beast appeared, the scene changed suddenly. That can happen in a dream. Daniel suddenly was transported to the throne room of the universe where he saw a representation of God himself. He didn't see God. No man has seen God except those who were here when Jesus arrived. But the throne of God was a fire, a blaze, because God is always symbolized in Scripture as an all-consuming fire. What does that mean? That means he wants to purify everything that would defile your life. It's not the fire you need to be afraid of. God takes his seat on the throne before a crowd of 100 million. Books of evidence are opened because the Supreme Court, the real Supreme Court, was going to be in session and God was going to render a judgment. And at that point, the little horn on the fourth beast, despite the moment, despite being in God's presence, insisted on being heard. And it spoke great words. Big words. Now that, that small horn with human eyes symbolizes an empire that is coming. An empire that will be the ultimate expression of man's rebellion against God. So I find it fitting that even though Daniel heard this, this horn speak great words, the words aren't recorded. I think that's poetic justice, and here's why. Rebellious humanity always wants to override God's narrative with its own narrative. But its words will be forgotten. They'll be lent on the pages of history, while God's word will endure forever and ever and ever and ever. Friend, do not build your life around a false narrative that has an expiration date Build your life on the narrative of God that endures forever. The fact that the little horn's words aren't mentioned is God's way of ghetto slapping. <laughs> Human rebellion. This week you will be exposed to the narrative of rebellious humanity. You'll see it on social media. You'll see it on the evening news. You'll hear it in the academic realm. You'll hear it in the political realm. Everywhere you turn, you'll be confronted with the false narrative of rebellious humanity. Remember, those words will one day be totally, totally, totally forever forgotten. The word of God will endure. 
And as Daniel watched, the verdict was rendered, and there was no appeal. This thing was not going to be dragged out. The beast was killed, and its body was destroyed by fire. Now, as we'll see, the fourth beast represents the coming rule of Satan's counterfeit Messiah, known in Scripture as the anti, the bogus, the fake, the counterfeit Christ, the Antichrist. He will preside over a counterfeit version of God's kingdom. The entire world will come under one single ruler in one single unified world government. And there are people pushing for that right now. That one world government under one man will be undergirded by one world religion. A religion that God refers to as the great whore because it prostitutes itself for political power and gain. The next time you read of a confessing follower of Jesus talking about our need to forget our differences and hook up with Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims since all paths lead to God, know that you're just hearing the setup words for a fake world religion and for the rule of the Antichrist and the ultimate expression of rebellion against God. You might say, why would God allow that to happen? Human history is where God is going to allow the human race to learn once and for all and where he's going to allow the angels of heaven to see once and for all that only God is fit to rule. Satan convinced a third of the angels he was better equipped to rule than God. God's got to let him have his chance. He's got to fail spectacularly, and then God will not have to concern himself with future rebellions. On the part of the angels of heaven are the hearts of redeemed humanity. And this Antichrist will be the ultimate expression of human blasphemy and human arrogance. He'll seek to destroy the Jewish people, and he will destroy anybody who confesses Christ. But a day is coming when his kingdom will come to an instantaneous end. There'll be no appeal. There'll be no rebirth. And I want to remind you, the believers who are suffering under that hideous regime, when God intervenes in judgment, you will not hear them saying, how could God be so unloving? How could God lack compassion that he would judge people? No, we know from Scripture that while they're suffering, They'll be saying, Lord, how long will you let this go on? And when he finally intervenes and rescues them, they'll shout hallelujah. When you're talking about the compassion of God, you know, sometimes how you view it depends on where you're standing. If you're in rebellion against God, compassion means he'll never call you on your rebellion. If you're suffering under the rebellion of sinful humanity, compassion means God won't put up with that crap forever. He's got to step in. And Scripture gives us the view of God and the people of faith. Some of us may see the day Daniel described, 
Maybe none of us will. But all of us are called to anticipate that day and live in light of that day. And all of us are called to remember that the God who controls the outcome of history will control the outcome of our history. Our history. So the visions remind us when it comes to the final outcome, the far off verdict, God says, I've got that. I've got that. Don't, don't, don't you worry yourself about it. Get back down on the couch. You don't need to worry. <laughs> you don't need to worry. I've got that. And if I've got the final outcome, nothing that happens to you in the interim will jeopardize that final outcome. And that means I won't allow anything in the immediate moment to keep you from that final outcome. And that means you don't have to get bent out of shape and get discouraged over what's happening in the immediate moment. When you don't know what the immediate future holds, when you don't know how the challenges before you are going to work out, know who holds the future. Know what that future is and hold on. A day is coming. A day is coming. And when it does in a moment, all the nonsense will end. And if you've decided for God and for Jesus, it'll be party time. And if you've rejected him, you'll have an eternity to ask yourself why. But that day is coming. Just as the first empire came and went, and the second came and went, and the third came and went, that fourth one will come, and then it will go. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And, and as we've got to emphasize, who does he give the kingdoms of the world to? To his people. That's why it's so silly to be jealous if your neighbor owns a quarter acre of land more than you do. Because the earth is the Lord's and his people inherit it all. Wait until Jesus comes. You'll get your 40 acres. <laughs> Wait until Jesus comes. You'll have plenty, <laughs> although it really won't matter then. That day is coming. That day is coming. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as your followers, we would remember the big picture so that we don't drown in the small details of the moment. Help us to know the final outcome so that we're never anxious, never fearful, so that we never resign ourselves to being disappointed. Help us to know that what we're going to watch in the future is really nothing more than a replay of visions you gave to your servant thousands of years ago. We know the outcome, and so we're ready. And I pray that as the narratives of unbelief increase in their intensity, that our confidence in your narrative will increase in its intensity. 
and that we'll hold on and do more than hold on, prosper in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.